0: Join me, please, in opening your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8. When we think of ways that man has channeled power, we can think of things like nuclear explosions, or we can think of harnessing electricity as our electricity companies do, and similar examples. Of course, when I think about power, I think in terms of cars. There are cars that can go zero to sixty rather quickly, And according to Motor Trend, the Aston Martin DBS Super Ligera, that is pretty sweet looking, isn't it? (laughs) I don't think any of us can afford that car. It goes 0 to 60 in 3.7 seconds. That's incredible. And yet they rank it as only the 20th fastest car, 0 to 60. Uh, Coming in at number 10 is the Acura NSX, 0-60 to in 3 seconds. Uh, That's pretty nice, too. I've seen one of those traveling about this city, actually. One time I saw it at Walgreens over on Hoxie Four Corners. So, uh, I don't know, go take a look at that. It was a nice blue uh, NSX. Coming in at number 2 is the Lamborghini Aventador SVJ. That, that can go 0-60 to 60 in a mere 2.5 seconds. And coming in, number one, according to Motor Trend, is the Tesla Model S in 2.4 seconds. Well, that, that's pretty neat. These are pretty impressive. But the manufacturers did not, listen carefully to my wording, they did not create these cars. They designed them with materials that were already created by God. God is the creator of everyone and everything. And so men have designed items, but all things were only created by God. So much time in our society is dedicated to praising the created thing above the Creator. And that is a major Major flaw. That's a big mistake. To, cre- to, to praise the creation over against the Creator. God is the Creator. And He is all-powerful. All of the powerful things that we see with our eyes come from a, a supply that is inexhaustible. God's almighty power. Power, in so many ways, is impersonal. Now, you might name your car Eleanor if it's a certain kind, or you might have another car, you might have a name for it, or you might say, look at my beautiful, um, I don't know what you, what you do with yours. St- Cars are impersonal, even if you want to personalize them. Power is impersonal. If you, if you stick your tongue in that, lightning, uh, that uh, electric outlet, it's, I'm going to say it's probably not going to care who you are. It's still going to do its damage to you. It's just going to run through you. Of course, you do have circuit breakers. Still don't do it. Power is impersonal. However, God is not impersonal. God is almighty and God is not impersonal. As we continue our study of Romans chapter 8 this morning, we must note that our celebration of the statement, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, our celebration of this is based upon a personal powerful working of God and we should observe as we read this text and consider this text we should observe that this is the working of a triune God God the Father God the Son and God the Spirit are all demonstrated and spoken of in this passage of scripture that tells us about the fact that we are not Not, never, in any way condemned. We will never be punished because our sin has been dealt with in the person of Jesus Christ. In these verses, we see the Father sending His Son who condemns sin in His flesh. And we see the Spirit of God setting us free from the principle of sin that leads to death. So we're going to read through the text and then we're going to recap where we... Left off last week, and then we'll move forward. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Last week, we discussed these two main points. We are not condemned because we are united with jesus christ in verse one there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what does it say in christ jesus we're in christ jesus god's spirit at the moment we turn from our sin and turn to jesus christ for our salvation he placed us into the body of christ we were united with him which lets us know that we died with him when He was buried, we were buried. And when He rose, we rose. We're united together with Him. The, the, our sins have been dealt with. They've been condemned. And the life that has been demonstrated to the Lord Jesus Christ in His resurrection will be ours as well one day. He is the firstfruits of those that sleep in Jesus. So we're not condemned because we're united with Christ. Secondly, we're not condemned because God sent Jesus Christ to condemn sin. We see that in verse 3. Take a look at verse 3 again. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God has done what the law could not do, not because the law was weak but because we are weak. That's what chapter 7 tells us. Oh, I want to do this, but I do that. I don't want to do this, and I do it anyway. It's not the law's fault. It's not God's fault. It's not the world's fault. It's not your wife's fault. I know you want to blame her. It's not even Satan's fault. Oh, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. You made you do it. Let everyone say when he is tempted, they can't say, I'm tempted by God. Why? Because God can't be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth He any man. But every man, that's you and that's me, every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Then when lust conceives, it brings forth sin, and sin when it's finished brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren, every good And perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of shifting or shifting shadows. God doesn't tempt us. Well, there might be temptation in the world, and there might be temptation from Satan, there might be a temptation within my household, but the sin comes from here. The law was not weak. I am weak. God tells us that. The law could not do this, but God has done something that the law could not do because of our weakness. How did He do something? He did this by sending His Son. That's what it says. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His Son. This is how He accomplished it. He sent His Son. Jesus came humbly as a man. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, speaking of Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a serpent, a servant, or a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. He came as a servant. He came in the likeness of men. In Hebrews chapter 2, it talks about the fact that he came in accordance with the seed of Abraham. And then in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 2. God's Word says this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come, how? In the flesh is from God. So Jesus came humbly as a man. Of course, we also know He came as God in in the flesh. We see that in John chapter 1 very clearly, don't we? But He also came righteously, fulfilling the law. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them, to satisfy them, to accomplish them. And we see that Jesus was tempted in every way like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus came righteously, fulfilling the law. And then we want to notice this, that Jesus came sacrificially. Laying down his life as a sin removing, guilt canceling sacrifice. Now, we're not going to take the time to turn to passages here because we talked about this last week, but Romans chapter 3 speaks about Jesus being the propitiation, the mercy seat where the blood is sprinkled. Jesus is that mercy seat. He settles God's wrath against our sin. And then we also could look at Hebrews chapters 9 and 10, the blood of Bulls and goats could never take away sin, but Jesus did once for all by the laying down of His own life. He removed our sin forever. So we see this. Jesus came. He came as a man humbly. He came uh, righteously fulfilling the law and He came sacrificially taking away our sin. In these ways, the end of verse 3, in these ways, He condemned sin in the flesh because He came in the flesh, as a man, because He came fulfilling the law, because He came laying His life down sacrificially, He condemned sin in His flesh. Uh, Douglas Moo made this comment I thought it was useful for us. Believers are no longer condemned because in Christ, sin has been condemned. Now take a look at a couple of passages with me. We're going to come back to Romans 8 in just a moment, but take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 you're in romans take a right two books 2nd corinthians chapter 5 and look at verse 21 for our sake he god the father made him god the son to be sin who knew no sin why so that in him we might become the righteousness of god you see in that verse a transfer now the word justification is not used in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, but the word justification is demonstrated. Because Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. So our sin was transferred to Him. Why? So that His righteousness could be transferred to us. There's this great exchange, which is what justification is. Justification is God removing our sin And giving us Jesus' righteousness. What a change has been made. This is the basis of us not being condemned because Jesus condemned sin in his flesh. Take a look at Galatians chapter 3. Look now at verse 13 with me. In verse 13, the Bible says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That is a, uh, that's an astounding passage. Jesus stood condemned and cursed by whom? Oh, the Romans. Oh, the Jews. Well, they tried their best. But the condemnation that he received was from his Father. Why? Because upon The Lord Jesus Christ was imputed sin. He didn't earn sin. He didn't commit sin. But He was charged guilty of sin. He became sin for us. But because He was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, as He hung there on the cross, God accepted His sacrifice. And the reason we know is that three days later, God raised Him up triumphantly over death. Thank you. He raised Him up triumphantly over death. And because of that, sin has been condemned. Sin has been condemned. Because God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering. It says for sin. You could translate that. And for a sin offering, God, God through Him, condemned sin in His, Jesus' flesh. This is glorious. And you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, have benefited, have experienced the benefits of Jesus condemning sin in the flesh. In 1 John chapter 1, and verse 9, which we know for, well, it says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful, means He'll do it every time, And He is just. That's an important word. That means when God forgives me for my sin, it's not like He sweeps it under the rug or just simply casts it into the sea. He doesn't simply toss it it as far as the east is from the west. It was first attributed and paid for. God is just. It's right. It's right for God to forgive my sin when I confess it. Why? Why? Because Jesus was condemned for that sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So every time, my friend, brother, sister in Christ, every time you you realize your sin in that day, maybe you got angry, maybe you were uh, tempted, you were lustful, you 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 were a glutton, whatever the problem may have come up in a day, and you go before the Lord, you say, Dear Father, uh, my I know that I was wrong. I recognize my sin. I see my sin as you see my sin. It's wrong. I've I've rebelled against you. Please forgive me. Every time you do that, you're acknowledging the fact that Christ condemned sin in his flesh. You benefit every single day from what we're reading in Romans chapter 8. I benefit every single day from what we're reading in Romans chapter 8. God. Will not condemn his people because we're in Christ. Why is that so important? Because Christ, in his arrival and his work on earth, put an end to the condemnation associated with the sin of the believer. Praise be to God. Head back, please, to Romans chapter 8. Our freedom from condemnation did not come through the law or our own efforts. Our freedom from condemnation is completely tied to God's work, His power on display. Now we come to the third major item of this small section at the beginning of Romans chapter 8. We are not condemned. God's Spirit sets us free. We see this in verse 2. We are not condemned. God's Spirit sets us free in verse 2. Look at what it says. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. God has set you free through His Spirit. The word there is in the past tense. It's an aorist, which means it's already taken place. We've already been sprung free. The bondage that once hung over us bondage to sin, bondage to death, bondage to my flesh. God has sprung me free because he's entrusted this work to the spirit of life, the spirit who produces life. Take a look please with me at the gospel of John chapter 8. The gospel of John chapter 8. Take a left through the book of Acts and you'll find the book of John, John chapter 8. And we see a an account in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ dealing with Jewish people who are contending with Him. Listen to what He says, beginning in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. And you will know the truth And the truth will what? Set you free. They answered Him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave, a bondservant to sin. An indentured slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The son, who is he talking about? Himself. The Lord Jesus can set you free from slavery to sin. And that's what Romans chapter 6 tells us. It tells us all about Jesus setting us free. From slavery to sin. Take a look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Not only have we been set free from slavery to sin, we have been set free to serve one another in love. This also comes by the work of the Lord Jesus. Galatians 5 beginning in verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look down at verse 13. For you were called to what? Freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another not only does the lord jesus set us free from bondage to sin he sets us free unto a liberty to serve one another in love it is a a joy that we have been entrusted with to serve one another in love now back in romans chapter 8 and verse 2 we have to answer the question well what is it that sets us free in john chapter 8 it's the lord jesus setting us free from slavery to sin In Galatians chapter 5, it's the Lord Jesus that sets us free to serve. But in Romans chapter 8 and verse 2, there's a what? A what that sets us free. Take a look again at verse 2 of Romans 8. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law. Now, he's not referring to the Mosaic law. He's referring instead to a principle or a ruling authority. This law of the spirit of life, this principle of the spirit of life that he's already told us that we're supposed to live by. In chapter 7 and verse 6 it says this, "...but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we might serve in the new way of the Spirit." not the old way of the written code. And so he's talking about that again here in chapter 8 and verse 2. He says, The law, the principle of the Spirit of life has set you free. The Spirit produces life. He's called the Spirit of life. The law of the Spirit that produces life has set you free. Let's take a look at a couple of verses about this. All right in Romans. Look at chapter 6. Chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. Now we're talking about what has set us free. The reason we're talking about what what has set us free is because there's no condemnation for us because we've been set free. The principle that comes through the Spirit of life... Now the, the principle doesn't give us life. The principle tells us about the life that comes from the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that actually springs us, sets us free but it's, a, a, it's a, a law or a principle that lets us know of this. The Spirit produces life is what we're talking about right now. Look at Romans chapter 6. We'll start in verse 21 just for a little bit of context. It says, But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? He's talking about the fact that we were slaves of sin in verse 20. The end of those things is what? Death. Sin Leads to, all right, let's try this again. Sin leads to death. death. Very obvious from that context. Now, verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, what? Eternal life. Verse 23 for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. How? in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look now at chapter 8. Chapter 8 and verse 6. Chapter 8 and verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The Spirit produces life. In 2 Corinthians 3.6, listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. That God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Why is that important? For the letter does what? Kills. The law brings about death because the law reveals our sin. But the Spirit does what? Gives life. Think about that. The Spirit gives life. Now later on in Romans chapter 8, he's going to talk about the fact that if you are led by the Spirit, you are the, a son of God. Right, And if you're a son of God, the Spirit of God is going to cry out through you, Abba, Father. And so you're a a joint heir with Christ. You're a son of God. The Spirit dwells within you because He's given you life. You've been adopted into God's family. Thomas Schreiner made this statement, The life-giving Spirit liberates believers from the principle of sin and the principle of death. Because the Spirit sets us free from sin's power, because the Spirit sets us free from sin's power, we gain confidence that God has set us free from sin's penalty, which is death. So as you look at verses 1 and 2 and try to understand them together, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from what? Condemnation in Christ Jesus. From the law of sin and death. So God has done this work through His powerful Spirit. This gives us further reason to understand and know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not condemned. Why? Because we are united together with Christ. We're not condemned. Why? Because uh, God has sent His Son to condemn sin. We're not condemned. Why? Because the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. The the sin that results in death. Now, fourthly, as we conclude and look at verse 4, we are not condemned because God fulfills the law in us through His Spirit. We are not condemned because God fulfills the law of God in us through His Spirit. Look at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God is doing something, and where is that activity located? In verse 4. I'm going to give you just a moment. Read verse 4 to yourself. God is doing something. Where is the activity taking place? In us. In verse 3, he says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How did he do it? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that... That's a purpose word. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled where? In us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So let's talk about this. This is still further proof that we are not condemned. Not only does sin and its penalty not lord over us anymore because God's Spirit has actually set us free, we also have God's Spirit actually producing righteous actions in us. God's Spirit actually produces righteous deeds in us. The word there is dikaioma. It's a nice one to say. Dicayoma. It means righteous deeds. And I want to take just a moment. We're going to do a little word study. We're not going to look at every instance of its use, but we're going to look at five of the eight uses. It is worth our time. Because we want to understand clearly what God is telling us the Spirit does in us producing righteous deeds. So take a look first of all at Romans chapter 1. We started our study this morning by talking about power, powerful cars, power that comes from a, an electrical socket, but all this power ultimately comes from a Creator God who is at work. God spoke the world into existence in six literal 24-hour days. It's a, it's, a, it's a marvel that we should never get over that God said, let there be light. And there was light. It should, it's a marvel that we should never get over with the fact that God says, commands the seas and they stand still. It should never, we should never get over the fact that there are billions upon billions upon billions of stars in the universe... And it's captured by God saying, and He made the stars also. Everybody brags about their work. Look, I painted my fence. Look at how nice it looks. Look, I washed my car. Isn't it great? We all brag about our works. God says, and He made the stars also. Because God's power is so incredibly majestic. He doesn't have to spend any time bragging on Himself. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day, utter speech. I mean, we know the rest of Psalm 19. God is at work. He demonstrates His power. And here we see God's power in Romans chapter 8, channeled, specific, and personal. God working for us. God working in us. Oh, I don't want to work for God. I want to to do this for God. That's good. Not going to ever complain about you want to do something for God and working for God. That's good. Let's do that. But God worked for you, and his work is perfectly done. We need to rejoice in what God has done for us. God works in us. Righteous deeds. We're in Romans chapter 1. Take a look at verse 32. We're going to see that word used here. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree, that is the word dikaioma in the Greek, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, the thing's opposite of it, but give approval to those who practice them. So that's a usage of the same word in the same book. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 26. Paul writes, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law... Will not His uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? The, what we're looking at keeps the precepts of the law. This righteousness. It's righteous deeds. It's something actually being accomplished. Look at chapter 5 now. In verse 18. We're studying this word, dikaioma, that in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. We're in Romans chapter 5 and verse 18. We'll see the word used there as well. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to uh, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And so we see this righteous deeds imputed to our account. There, take a look now at the book of Revelation, chapter fifteen, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter fifteen, and I think we really see it. Come crystal clear in these two texts in the Book of Revelation. Revelation chapter fifteen. We'll start first with fifteen four. In Revelation fifteen four, God's word says, "Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship You. For Your say these two words with me, please. Righteous acts have been revealed. That's our word, dikaioma. Righteous, what? Acts. Look now at chapter 19, Revelation 19 and verse 8. For some fun, we'll start in verse 6. Revelation 19 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is... What does it say? The righteous deeds of the saints. I think we have a pretty clear understanding of what Dikaioma stands for. Righteous deeds. Now, in justification, everyone is justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. In justification, God removes our sin and imputes to our record Jesus' righteous deeds. That's good. That's glorious. In this passage back in Romans chapter 8, as you head back there, the Spirit is accomplishing these righteous deeds where? In us. Not on our account, but in us. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled where? In us. This is not talking about justification, as glorious as justification is. And as much as I'd love to talk about more discussions about justification, that's not what he's talking about here. And he makes it very clear as we come to the last two phrases of verse 4. It says, "...who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." this passage is talking about performing these righteous deeds in us while we walk according kata, according, numa, the Spirit. Kata numa. As we walk according to the Spirit, not kata sarks. Not according to the flesh. He's telling us it's not about the, the fact that the law was weakened by the flesh. Remember that statement earlier? The law, weakened by the flesh. We're not dependent on the flesh right now. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And the same thing not only happens in justification when He condemns sin in the flesh, the same thing happens in our walk with God, which we call sanctification. The process whereby God is making us Holy The process whereby God is causing us to be more like His Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is doing this work? The Spirit is. The Spirit does this in us as we walk according to the Spirit rather than according to the flesh. We've been told in Galatians 5.16 that we are to walk in the Spirit. And when we walk in the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. God is at work in us. And when we walk in the Spirit, not only do we not gratify the desires of our flesh, what else does that passage end up telling us? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Against such there is no law Why? You don't need the law when the Spirit is working righteous requirements within you. It's a beautiful thing. You see, the Gospel brings us unto Christ. The Gospel continues its work as we walk with Christ. God is not using a law to make us perfect. It can't do that. God is using the Gospel to make us draw near to Christ. So the same Faith that we had to come into Christ is the same way we walk in Christ. Have you heard that one before? Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He tells us, be rooted and grounded. As you received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him. You see, we're, we're seeing the key to spiritual growth. As we think about this, I want to ask you these couple of questions. Whose power is on display in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4? Whose power is on display? God's. God's power is on display. Okay, here's a second question Who should be praised? God. This is what the gospel is for to tell us it's not about me, it's about Him. The work has been done and the work continues. The work has been done in establishing an eternal perfect record. The work continues as God works that righteousness in me today and in you today. Thank the Lord. When God puts his righteousness on display through his power in us, we who are weak, we see a chasm between the good law that could not produce righteousness. And the good gospel, which does produce righteousness. This righteousness on our record is why we're not condemned. And this righteousness in life gives evidence of our being united with Jesus Christ. God is proving that he's dwelling within us. God is proving that we're his children. God is proving that his spirit dwells in us. As we see the righteous requirements of the law fleshed out in our lives. We need this. This is not law preaching. This is Gospel preaching. Do you sense that the lordship of sin has been broken in your life? Are you confident that the penalty of sin has been removed? Have you experienced the joy of God producing His fruit within you? If you said yes, yes, yes to those, then my friend, my my brother, my sister in Christ, I want you to rejoice today. Rejoice in God's powerful working. And I want you to be ready to give an answer to every man who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you. Do it with meekness. Do it with reverence. And I want you to be, and myself, I want us to be looking For those who are in bondage to sin and have a debt of death to pay, they need to know that God has condemned sin through the work of Jesus Christ. We need to tell them that they can be set free. That they can have life. That they can have it abundantly, eternally, with God and God can change their lives. Perhaps you're not confident that you have been rescued from your sin. Maybe you're not sure that you will not be condemned with the world. You can be sure today. And I want to invite you. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. I'll come back up and pray for the sixth time we've prayed this morning. We'll say, God bless you, and we'll see you later. But if you aren't sure that you've been rescued from your sin, you're not sure that that condemnation has been removed from you, come on down the front. There'll be someone here ready to open the Bible with you and show you how you can be sure today that you will never be condemned. And you can be sure today that God has granted you eternal life. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank You. Thank You for all You've done. Thank You for Your amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Because of Your work, through Your Spirit and Your Word, based upon the work of Your Son, Jesus Christ, and Your glorious plan to save people who are broken and sinners and unworthy. You saved people like me for yourself we rejoice in you and we also rejoice that you don't leave us to fend for ourselves once you rescue us from our eternal problem you you also walk with us you're in us and you work your righteousness in us father we want to demonstrate your righteousness in this life for your glory and for the sake of our neighbors seeing that people's lives can be changed, including their own. Father, use us this week to influence other people, to to give the gospel to others, and may they turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.